You know, when we started this COVID thing back in March, April, one of the words that really resonated with me was that we weren't just going into quarantine or lockdown, that God was incubating us, that this was a, a greenhouse growing time where God could work on us as individuals or families or really even as a church and faith community in ways that he couldn't when we were, we were running around. And, you know, that word has really stayed true to me, that God is incubating us during this time. And I want to lean into that. I don't want to waste our, our COVID. This is a long and lengthy lesson for us to not learn anything from. It's my hope that, you know, we gain better hygiene habits from this, continue good hand washing, all of that. Let's not go back to sneezing on each other. Okay, guys, uh, my family has a little fringe side benefit, has actually had zero coughs, colds, or sniffles during this time. But I also want us as a country to, to emerge better, to, to learn from this time and grow from this incubation time uh, with with better care for essential workers, uh, to come together better as, as a community in difficult times. I want our family to develop better uh, rhythms of home life. I want myself as an individual to be rooted in rest and contentment. How do we? emerge from hardships, from, from hard times, renewed and remade. Well, some folks in our community have had some real experience with this question. Well, I have our friend Tracy Burke here to talk to us, uh, just to talk about a, a difficult time that you had a couple of years ago uh, and how God moved in that space and brought healing and restoration to you. And I think did some good stuff in your family. Um, so uh, a couple of years ago, you were in a car accident and Tracy, can you just tell us uh, a little bit of what was going on around that time and just sure. uh, kind of what you were processing when you were in the hospital? Completely yet. I went to pick up my daughter from school and I was in the accident and then everything went from about a thousand miles an hour to zero in one big halt. I was in UMass for about a week and at Whittier for about a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just had to relearn a lot of different things because I broke a lot of bones. I broke my ribs and my hips and my sacrum and just all kinds of things. So it was a, I was relearning a lot, but was a few days after my accident, Chris had come into the hospital with the newspaper and mm -hmm. he had shown me a picture of my car. And it was, at first I just looked at it because I, I, I don't want to see that, you know, it was pretty mangled. And lo and behold, as he's showing me, he was really excited because in the back airbag, it, there was a picture in the the airbag deployed in the shape of Jesus and his face was very prominent in that picture. And for me, I was like, Oh yeah, yeah. I knew God was there, but for him, he was super excited and it really built his faith. And he just went around the whole hospital and he showed everybody what was going on. And I think it was just the start of, his journey which was super exciting it's always good to hear that like you know obviously the accident wasn't uh the the good thing but that there was so many good things that came out of it is encouraging and that god really showed up and, uh, yeah. showed himself to both you and chris i think it's just pretty 
pretty special, pretty powerful. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of things that came out of it. It wasn't just showing that piece of it, but just his love in general. I don't think I felt his powerful, how powerful his love was um, until that happened. Um, because the outpouring of love that you received, you know, while you were in the hospital, the outpouring of love you see, see in people just trying to help you in all, all kinds of different ways. And, well, you know, thanks for sharing part of your story with us, Tracy. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for that story, Tracy. You know, we want to rely on God's, God's presence to renew us. There's lots of things that we cannot do by our own power, our own trying, our own strength. We want to rely on God's presence to change us and restore us through difficulties, to even remake us and renew us. So friends, will you pray with me together as we start this morning that God would really use hard circumstances to bring real change in us? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that whenever we go through difficulties, that's not me going through difficulties. It's you going through difficulties with me and that you're right here with us, Jesus. We take this time to open our hearts and our minds to your presence. Jesus, I pray that every person uh, sitting on their couch uh, their dining table, wherever we're at, Jesus, would have a real sense of your presence right there with them. Jesus, we receive you. We, we welcome your love to speak to us, to be with us this morning, Jesus. Would we live spiritually, live knowing that you are right here with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And would you change us this morning? Would we be more rooted and grounded in your love in your peace, and your presence. We say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be looking at the story of some of our brothers and sisters in faith way, way back. Uh, they messed up. They face consequences uh, for that. But you know, a consequence from God is never just a, a punishment. This was a, a, a reset, a, a refresh, a, a time to try again for them. We're looking at the story of Ezra and, and Nehemiah. Let's see what their journey was like for the Israelites as, as they made this tough journey as a community of faith. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's 
with all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation-laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend, he's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. Great, great. So these guys are setting out to see God's renewal and restoration under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was actually a great proponent of religious freedom. He did this for a lot of his subjects. Um, and so he allows the Jewish people, they're still you know, under his control, he's still the king, he's still the boss, but he's like, okay, guys, I'll let you return uh, and restore some center of life, you know, to help them th th flourish and, and thrive, um, ultimately will will be good for Cyrus. So chapter one has his proclamation, his decree, as we look at Ezra, uh, chapter one also talks about their packing list as they pack up the gold and silver to return. Chapter two lists all the families that went and returned to thousand descendants of the family of Farosh, 372 descendants of another family whose name I have trouble pronouncing, each family remembered and recorded. They travel, journey, arrive, get to work, and they do good work. It's good. They make a lot of progress, uh, complete the foundations of the temple, but somehow it's not quite what they had hoped for. Chapter 3, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priest put on their robes and took their places to blow the trumpets and the Levites, the descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests Levites and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. So they've got it. They've got the temple. But some people are disappointed. Others are happy. Like, why? Why? What's going on here? God does not do the same thing twice. He does better. God doesn't repeat his work. He improves his work. God doesn't just patch up and fix things. He renews them and makes the remakes them. Some of us are looking for God to do the same thing again. We want God to hit replay. That thing, I like that thing. Let's do that again. We're looking for something familiar we, that we know, we, we like. We just, we want that again. We're looking for something we recognize instead of someone we recognize. I just don't think that God typically repeats his work. He's created each one of us uniquely. Each church is a little different. The seasons and, and times that we go through are unique. And God's grace is creative and, and new. If we want things to look the same, we, like these elders, are going to end up 
in tears. What do you want that was really good before COVID? You know, I'll be honest, many people are just like, take life back to February 2020. Like February 2020, beginning of March 2020 was like the pinnacle of your life. You know, just just make time stop, just reverse it. I just want things to go back, go back to how they were before spiritually. Some of us are are like that. We just we we want things to go back to, you know, oh, remember when I was a new Christian, I didn't have doubts or, you know, back then or at this time period, it was really easy to pray or, you know, I didn't have these questions or or at church, that church we had, you know, these exciting church services or that small group, so many friends, so many good social connections there. Um what do you long for? In the past, what do you want to see happen again with your family? Remember that perfect time as a family where so-and-so wasn't working or this or is that? Isaiah 43 says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and streams in the desert. God wants to do new things. So here, as the Israelites go through their journey of faith as a community, God doesn't do the same thing twice. He's doing something different now. And by different, we mean small. Only about 50,000 people returned. Uh, God wasn't building a nation in the same way. He didn't need the same size population. That was super small compared to many of their neighbors that felt vulnerable and insignificant. But small was significant. Listen, it is fine. If we don't like, you know, lockdown, if we don't like, you know, weakness and vulnerability, it's fine if we don't like it, but we need to see the significance to it. Without God, no one would have returned. Their, their, uh, uh, their, their survival was proof of God's sovereignty, however small it was. And we'll see as they continue their, their journey that being in exile, uh, even though they're returning captives uh, from a small number of people, that the term ca- exile actually becomes a, uh, a honorific term, a, a term of honor uh, that they had made it, even though they were a small number. It reminds me of the story of Gideon. God told Gideon to fight the Midianites, uh, this big army. And uh, Gideon, he had a, he assembled a decent-sized group of people. And God said, no, no, too many. He said, tell everyone who's nervous they can go home. Well, who would be nervous? So two-thirds of them left, went home. He said, okay, now with the small group that's left, take them to go get, get a drink of water from the river. They go down, get a drink of water, everyone... Scoops up some water. A few of them, however, stick their faces into the water and lap up the water like dogs. God says, oh, those few? Those are the ones you should take. He took their numbers right down to just ridiculously few. And of course, they won because God was on their side. God said, now that you are small, I can work through you. Are we willing to be small so that God can be big? Most of us, we think that, that we, we need to be big and then we'll prove how big God is. You know, when, when we have an influential church with lots of people or if we have political power, if our life looks really nice, people want to copy us, we'll make God look good. 
Friends, usually when we are big or powerful or popular or influential, half the time we end up making God look bad. When we are small, God can work freely through us and do amazing things. But here's the principle that we see throughout the Bible in so many stories. People going through hard situations of of the nation of Israel. The restoration is always greater. The restoration is always greater. And here we see a restoration. We're going from a nation to a church. They have walked through disaster and God is doing a new thing in them. They become not a group of fellow citizens, but a community of worshipers. They choose to follow God. They are united not by their country, but by their covenant. And we see this in the big scope of the Bible story as well. God is forming a people for himself. His desire is to be with his creation, be with his people. And he promises to Abraham and his family to bless them and be a blessing to everyone around them. And they become a nation and lead that country in godly ways. But then God expands it and Israel gives birth to Jesus and it becomes, it it expands into becoming the church. We see as we read Ezra and Nehemiah as their journey continues that they are actually the most uh, uh, Jewish religiously that they ever have been. They're in a terrible uh, situation politically. They're not in the situation that they hope and prayed and longed for. But their religious life, their worshiping life is stronger than it ever has been before. As the Israelites continue their journey The presence of God isn't confined to one place. The temple isn't this aha glory moment. They still need to build the rest of the city, the the walls. The, The presence of God is expanding. We also see that leadership isn't confined to one person. There's no Abraham or Moses in this story. Uh, It takes about 100 years for them to rebuild, about 530 B.C. to 430 B.C. And uh, during that time, there's Zerubbabel, there's Ezra, there's Nehemiah. But most of all, there's the community, the people of God working together. They go from power to presence, from country to church, from one temple to a holy city, from one leader to a community of people. And that teaches us that it's not about power. It's about presence. It's not about power, size, numbers, influence. It's about the presence of God. Power is a cheap substitute for the presence of God. Power is just a a terrible substitute for love, for care, for sitting in, in the presence of God, for standing in the security and confidence of God. And we've all seen power substituted for presence. We've all seen parents who who punish and control their children instead of building a relationship of trust. We've seen bosses who who demand rather than inspire uh, and collaborate. Friends, God has done his best work in me and my lowest, weakest points. My call to ministry came in probably the worst year of my life. I was working a job that was... It's really uh, difficult for me. It was not going well. Uh, I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating well. It was just a really bad year for me. Uh, and in the midst of that, God said, No, Sarah, I have something new for you. It wasn't because I was doing great. It wasn't because I had made it. It was because God said, No, 
I have something for you, and it's going to be through my presence, not through your own power. You know, the times when I have felt closest to God was actually when I was the loneliest. When I felt like there is no one else to turn to uh, as a single person traveling, going through lots of changes, having no friends in the places I, I was living at, um, that's when really God was so real to me. And I experienced things in prayer, experienced things in closeness with Jesus that have just changed me uh, and impacted me for, for decades, made me who I am today. How about you, friends? Do you want things to go back? how they were. Do you want to be powerful and stable and secure? Are we willing to let God transform us in small, vulnerable places where God's presence does the work, knowing that the restoration is always greater? I just really believe that there's a call for us to put aside the things we try and grab onto for security, for power, for, for just confidence to be willing to let those things go and let God rebuild us and remake us to do something new in us through his presence, not our own power. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you can do more in us than we ever could. We can take ourselves to a certain spot, but you can take us to places that we never would have imagined, that are healthier for us, that are better for us, and that are more joyful. So Jesus, right now we say, you know best. You know best. Would you come? Uh, we give you control. We give you the keys uh, to, to our hearts. We ask that you would work in us. And we, we take this time uh, individually and corporately to reject the tempting path of power. To say no. We choose your way. We choose the way of Jesus Christ who came and walked with humanity, who died, but who rose again to far greater restoration. We choose the way of Jesus. And we ask that you would come. And as we go through hard times, Jesus, would you use that as, uh, as the catalyst? Would you use that um, and put us on the potter's wheel, remake us, renew us, Jesus? Come, Holy Spirit. We trust you. Thank you that you are in control. And we say yes and amen to your plans in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.